6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. What I've tried to do tonight in these remarks is not only share what I think is a, a relevant personal testimony, I also am trying to give you a tool that can affect your whole life. And that is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit deal with these problems. I have saved you in the few minutes we've spent together so far hours of library research that will be at Box Canyon. So I'm one to tell you I'm a, I'm a technically trained engineer. I've studied the Bible in effect for 40 years, taught it for 20. And the more I study and dig in it, the more I am awed by the integrity of the design of the Holy Spirit in this in these collection of 66 books. In fact, if there's any one thing that gives me strength and comfort in a sea of adversity is the recognition that this book is, in fact, holy. It is not a collection that contains the Word of God. To a view that the Bible contains the Word of God implies that somebody has to separate the wheat from the chaff. Nonsense. The statement that's more relevant is that this Bible is the Word of God. And when you start discovering in the most obscure genealogies germs of truth that impact everything else, when you begin to realize that every subtlety ties into everything else, that's when you stand back in utter awe. Now, as we approach this book, it's going to be kind of fun because we've chosen to embark on exploration of the high ground. One of the most interesting subjects in my mind is prophecy. And some of the richest, most profound prophecy is in the Old Testament. And the most comprehensive book uh, in the Old Testament, prophetically, is the book of Isaiah. We call them a major prophet. There's five prophets that are called major prophets. It does not mean they're more important. That just means they wrote more. Major in the sense of bulk, larger. And uh, Isaiah is the largest, 66 books. But what's going to make Isaiah fun is the discovery of what's in this book. One of the things, see, you and I, in general, as Christians, generally get a lot of exposure to the New Testament. And there are certain topics that are very topical among us. For example, we talk about the Antichrist. I've been doing a personal study on that lately for lots of reasons, and I was flabbergasted to discover that most of what we know about the Antichrist is out of the Old Testament. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament. There are 20 Psalms focusing on the Antichrist. But you have to know what to look for. And what's interesting, uh, that's one reason I guess that I have sort of at the moment at least, I'm going through a phase where I'm really anxious to dig in deeper into that portion of the scripture that sometimes we'll read devotionally and swing through, but we really don't dig out the nuggets. And uh, I think a review, not too laborious, we'll try to keep it moving, but of Isaiah uh, will be very, very rewarding. Now, 
uh, I'd like to, before we get in too much into Isaiah, is to get a little bit of background. Isaiah is different than a lot of these guys. You know, some of these prophets were of fairly obscure backgrounds. Isaiah, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about him. He's son of Amos, but it's not, nothing to do with Amos, by the way. Both the first and the last letters in the Hebrew are different. And nothing to do with Amos the prophet. Son of Amos. First of all, Isaiah was a man of rank. We know from chapter 7, he had direct access to the king. He's a heavy. He also was an intimate friend of the high priest. So these inferences cause us to recognize that Isaiah is a little different kind of guy than a lot of the books of the Old Testament uh, were written by. The other thing about Isaiah that we will miss in the English pretty much is that it becomes clearly, in extreme case, it's the highest level of Hebrew writing. If you're a student of language, Isaiah is the high ground. It's almost an inventory of every rhetorical device you can mention in terms of epigrams and allegories and analogies and poetry. Every category of rhetoric, every category of rhetoric you can find in the book of Isaiah. It's a masterpiece in that regard. Obviously, that's not our primary interest. I mentioned it in passing. But even, you even will have, in what's really amazing, and we'll show you this when we get to chapter 7, we have encryptions in the book. And if you're a student of secret writing, with one of the agencies or what have you, the encryptions that are in Jeremiah and Isaiah are well known if you're a student of cryptography. And they're regarded by the trade as simply interesting historical novelties. But if you're a mystic, like I am, the fact that the Holy Spirit has encryptions in the Scripture causes one to wonder what else there is. If uh, the CIA computers can find something, that's one thing. What can you find if the Holy Spirit's working with you? Huh? That's a whole other question. Well, we get to that when the time comes. Also, to get some of these things out of the way, get them behind us, I'd like to tell you there are some traditions about Isaiah. Now, I say traditions... Uh, you realize I'm speaking of information that we infer from extra-biblical sources. You, before I get into that, I should also share with you, recognizing some of you are new here and may not know me as some of the regulars who have been together almost 20 years. So I apologize for being a little repetitious, but you need to know what you're up against. Some people in this audience said, can you imagine being abused for 18 years, 20 years, whatever it's been? <laughs> I have a strange attitude about traditions. And doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just sharing this so you at least know where I'm coming from. I hold what I sometimes like to dignify by calling it constructive cynicism. But I think most traditions, delete most, all traditions, <laughs> are probably wrong. Traditions come from man. And the traditions that I have explored generally are incorrect. From all this, I, have, I just have this sort of caution or cynicism or attitude thing towards traditions, that the most traditions, that if they're, they're either biblical, if they're biblically rooted, I'll buy it. If they're not biblically rooted, I always treat it with great suspicion. It may not be harmful, it may not be irrelevant, but I still do it that way. And I don't care whether you're talking about the date of Christmas. We've been all through that. Everybody knows that Jesus was not born in the winter. Uh, Christmas, our, our celebration really emerges from, from uh, the corruption of, uh, or I should say, the tailoring of some uh, pagan holidays. And we've all been through that when we study uh, the Christmas background. If you study the Stations of the Cross in Israel, they were picked by Constantine's mother, right? I'm not sure what theological background qualifies her to do that, but anyway, most of those today, I believe, are regarded with great suspicion among serious scholars. 
you know, the Dome of the Rock. You know, it's presumably, among other things, celebrates not only the location of the temple, and that confusion is understandable in view of the history, but it also presumably celebrates Abraham's offering of Isaac. Well, that's got all kinds of problems, because when Abraham offered Isaac, there was a Jebusite city there, you see. Remember, he offered him Genesis 22, and Genesis 14, Melchizedek was hanging around that, them parts, huh? So it wasn't a desolate place. And would Abraham offer Isaac, uh, uh, you know, a few yards away from the current uh, Jebusite market? I don't think so. That well, it wasn't on the high ground. Where did Abraham offer Isaac? I think on the high ground we, we covered that. So the point is, some of these traditions that cloud our view are, and if they're not biblically rooted, I regard them with great suspicion. So having said all that, <laughs> I still owe it to you to share such traditions as we know about Isaiah. First of all, it turns out traditionally he was the cousin of King Uzziah. Now, I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information. You know, Jerusalem was his home. That seems to be uh, understood. He was married and had two sons. There's some inferences from some misunderstandings that he was married twice. That's really, I think, textual confusion. He seems to be married, had two sons. Fine. We'll talk about his two sons because he names them in a strange way, and there's some lessons in that, but we'll take that when we get there. The other tradition about Isaiah that's worth mentioning is traditionally it's believed that he was martyred by Manasseh by being sawn in half. The fact that he was martyred by Manasseh is, in fact, uh, in the Mishnah. The fact that he was sawn in half with a wooden saw, think about that a little bit, was first mentioned by Justin Martyr in 150 A.D. So while it's extra-biblical, it's very early. And yet uh, we also have a reference in Hebrews 11 where it lists some specific men of uh, faith, but then it summarizes others saying even prophets that were sawn asunder, Right? And so it is extra-biblical, but generally widely regarded that Isaiah was martyred by Manasseh. That seems to be reasonably documented. And that he was, in fact, sawn in half. And being sort of of a flippant nature, I'm always intrigued that Isaiah being sawn in half, to me, was done by Cop in 1780 with the two Isaiah theory rather than Manasseh's saw. But in any case... (laughs) Now, that confirms your worst suspicions about Chuck Missler. I'll keep going on here. Some other things about Isaiah that will catch us as we go, but I can't resist sharing a few things with you. You know, if I talk to you about the helmet of salvation and the personal armor of God, you immediately think of Ephesians 6, don't you? And, you know, we're always told that there was Paul writing his letter to Ephesians chained to a Roman soldier. And we always visualize the helmet of salvation, all these different things, as if Paul is looking at this Roman and using that by analogy in his letter to Ephesians. And that may be true. I'm not knocking it. But it's interesting that those phrases Paul uses come out of Isaiah. We'll get into the helmet of salvation and so forth. If I said to you, behold, I see a new heavens and a new earth, where am I quoting from? Well, Revelation, yeah. How about Isaiah? I could give you probably a dozen quotes on a little written quiz, and you would say each one of those are from Revelation. And you'll be surprised to discover some of those aren't even in Revelation, they're in Isaiah. And I won't do that now, we'll get to that when we get there. So one of the things, and I'll backtrack a little bit for those that may be among us, for, you know, that are joining this Heresy 1A by Chuck Missler for the first time. There's some other views that I have, but I want to get them out. So in case you don't know me, you'll, know, you'll understand the kinds of things we're going to be digging out of Isaiah. I believe, as I said, these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years are designed as an integral message system. And I don't mean just the themes or the overview. I mean every detail, every word, every phrase, every place name, every number, every genealogy is designed skillfully. 
And I think there's all the elements of design here that you'd find, for example, in the DNA molecule or something else. I think there's the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit are all through this book. Now that leads to the whole issue of the time domain. And I won't develop that whole idea now other than to remind you that you and I are physical. We have mass. We're in gravity. Therefore, we have a time clock. And we live in three and a half dimensions. We live in three dimensions of space, length, width, height, breadth, right? We also live in what some people might call a half dimension in time. It's not a full dimension because we can only move forward. We can't move back. We can move forward and look back. We can't look forward or move back. You can't remember tomorrow, can you? Anyone remember tomorrow in here? If it was, we'd have to pray for you. But, um, so we're in a physical dimension called time, but it's, we know today in modern physics it's a physical property. We have a tough time relating that as layman, but if you're in physics or in mathematics, you realize that time is not necessarily linear, not as, is not absolute. It had a beginning, just like not only matter and energy, but t- space itself had a beginning. And we know that now. Now, God, of course, is outside time. It's not that he has eternity, lots of time on his hands. He's outside the time domain altogether. And he demonstrates that to us by sending us a message, a series of messages, that demonstrate his transcendency outside time by telling us the end from the beginning. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, God does nothing but that which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. That not only says that God tells us what's coming, it says that he doesn't do anything he hasn't told us. Chew on that one for a while. So one of the things that I'd like us to be sensitive to as we move into prophecy, I don't care whether you're in the laboratory or the observatory or in a launching platform today. This whole idea of time, we know, is not linear, is nonlinear, and uh, it is a property that can be transcended. And you and I, as we spend time together in Isaiah, are going to enjoy that. We're going to move by the power of the Spirit, outside time, and we're going to see in Isaiah God's whole plan. His whole plan. From the miracle of our origin, whatever that means, unto the mystery of our destiny. One of the reasons Isaiah is so uh, befuddled the critics, and I'm not going to be flipping here, I'm being quite serious, is the scope of Isaiah vastly transcends the scope of the critics. And I'm not saying that to needle the critics. Not that I'd miss a chance, but that's not my point. (laughs) As we begin to understand the scope of what Isaiah is going to deal with, it's going to be staggering in its sweep. In Genesis, we talked about the gap theory. That comes out of Isaiah 48. Well, I'll go through a a summary of some of the things we'll go to here in a minute. Something else that Isaiah is going to deal with, you know, I always talk about the Bible being a message system that's designed, right? I don't know if we have any communication engineers in the audience, but if we were designing a communication system, whether it's a phone or video or whatever, if we're trying to get a message from point A to point B, we typically enjoy between those two points some bandwidth, that is some amount of channels. We might have a very poor communication channel. It doesn't have much room. Or we might have a tremendously broad... Whatever we, have, whatever we have, we have. We have a communication channel. If you're an engineer designing a communication system, and if you're designing that system anticipating hostile jamming, that is, you've got between point A and point B, you're anticipating an enemy that's going to try to either block or confuse the traffic. 
You anticipate that in your design. And one of the things you do is you take the message you're trying to send and you spread it over the available bandwidth. You don't send the message in any one place because it's easier to jam, right? You take the message and spread it. That's one, one of the strategies you use in, in electronic countermeasures, for example. Why am I getting into this? Because we discover that this book, these 66 books, are designed with that in mind. Let me show you what I mean. In your Bible, is there a chapter on baptism? Is there a chapter on how to get saved? Take any biblical doctrine. Can you find it in one place? No. You'll discover that every idea of consequence in the Scripture is diffused throughout the whole Scripture. If you're going to study salvation, redemption, baptism, you name it, name any major doctrine, you go to a chain reference, don't you? It starts in Genesis. There's a chain. That the ideas that God is trying to send to you are diffused throughout your bandwidth. Why? Because it makes it resilient to hostile jamming. Tear a page out of the Bible. What have you lost? There's someplace else you can cross-check. In other words, it's like a hologram. You can drill a hole in it and always look around the hole. Holograms are Fourier transform of a spatial image. The Bible, in a sense, is like a Fourier transform of God's truth. It's diffused everywhere. You may lose resolution, but you never lose the data. Now, why am I getting into that? Because Isaiah says so. We're going to suffer when we get when we get to Isaiah 28 and 29. We're going to discover that God, through Isaiah, explains why He does this. I established my truth line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It's not accidental. He's designed it that way for probably lots of reasons, one of which is it appears he's anticipated that he's going to be dealing in a hostile alien environment. And it's anticipated that. Every problem you have, every heresy you encounter, every attack on truth is anticipated by the Holy Spirit. And that's a great comfort and it's a great discovery and it's a lot of fun. One other thing, we talk about texts. Isaiah is kind of fun too because in 1947, in cave number one of Qumran, they found some scrolls that are part of the collection that you and I know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? There are lots of things they found in the Dead Sea that make up in the scrolls, but the most valuable thing they found was... 10.2 inches high and 24 feet long, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And the books are full of the little subtle differences between how it looks versus what we thought it said. And you know what the net of all that is? No difference. The flabbergasting discovery out of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that the Isaiah you and I have is accurate. There's a couple of subtle, trivial things that it allows uh, researchers to talk about, but they have no impact on the content of the book. That's a staggering, that's a staggering empirical verification of the soundness of the text we have. For the things you and I are going to be interested in, there's only one thing that will be adequate for our purposes, and that is that Isaiah is part of the Old Testament. How many knew that? Good. The Old Testament was translated into Greek from 270 to 85 B.C., and the, and the critics say, well, gee, it might have even gone into, you know, into the 200. 
you know, they've taken spread over a century. Hey, we're still talking more than one century before Christ was born, even if you grant those arguments. Nonsense. Cinch. Because what's going to grab us... And by the way, that's the other problem. That's why the critics have, talk, have to talk about Isaiah 2. Because the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 are so flabbergasting, so precise, that the critics have to late date. If you confront something supernatural and you, want you, and you feel compelled to deny it, you have to argue that, well, gee, it wasn't written, then it was written later. Well, let me tell you, they've got a great problem trying to prove it was written after it was translated into Greek. <laughs> yeah. In fact, by the time you're through reading Isaiah, you'll, con- you'll convince that it had to be written after the book of Revelation was written. A couple of other things. There's some concepts in Isaiah that you'll find interesting. He has, among other things, he has a name for God. He calls God, in a number of cases, the Holy One of Israel. It's a phrase he uses. It's idiomatic of Isaiah. He uses that 25 times in his book. Why am I making a point of that? Because it only appears six times elsewhere in the Old Testament. So it's a phrase that's almost characteristic of Isaiah, right? And by the way, it occurs 12 times in Isaiah 1 and 13 times in Isaiah 2. So Isaiah seems to have distributed that quite uniformly. He speaks of God's highway uh, seven times. He speaks of the remnant a dozen times. The remnant of Israel is going to be a popular theme with him. And that's going to be very interesting because you and I are going to have a lot of interest in the remnant of Israel. He speaks of Zion uh, 18 times, 10 times in Isaiah 1. And and when I say Isaiah 1, I'm being cute. I mean in quotes, obviously. There's a one Isaiah, but... From the, in the idiom of the critics. Isaiah is going to talk a lot about the pangs of childbirth, prophetically speaking. Those of us that are students of Daniel and Matthew and so forth know that's a popular concept in prophecy. It doesn't occur just a couple of times, it's half a dozen times in Isaiah alone. The idea that, that the fulfillment of prophecy is like a woman giving birth. The pangs, you know, getting more and more intense and so forth. He will deal with that frequently. Okay. A couple of other overview things. Is this is sort of the get acquainted evening as we get started in a new book. It's, I like to get some of this background stuff out of the way. We're saying, gee, what are we in for here? Uh, what's Isaiah all about? Let's talk a little bit about it. One of the exciting things, and I don't think we'll get into it tonight, but we will next time. The first six chapters of Isaiah, the first natural unit. And in chapter 6, we have a vision of the throne of God. And we will take that occasion to explore Not only what Isaiah tells us, which is substantial, but I'm going to give you, since we have a break next week, I'd like to give you some homework assignments. So those of you, since you've got a free evening you hadn't planned on, let me fill it up for you. I'd like you, between now and the next time we meet, to read Isaiah 6. Because obviously we'll get to that, but I'd like it fresh in your mind. Read Isaiah 6. But I'd also like you to explore Ezekiel chapter 10. And Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Those three passages, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 10, and Revelation 4 and 5, the thing that ties them together is those are the three major places where we have in view the throne of God. That's a glib phrase. It's hard for us perhaps to conceptualize that the creator of the universe the one that's beyond time and space, the one that is responsible for everything, has a throne, 
That's conceptually something we might intellectually consent to. We have a hard time visualizing it. We're going to see three different people who had the opportunity to confront the throne of God, to be there. We're going to discover that those three passages have some things in common. That's always interesting to see what seems to be uh, common to those three experiences. We'll also discover those three experiences have some differences. Some of those we probably won't understand. Some we can draw some interesting conjectures from. So we'll explore the throne of God. As we move through Isaiah, of course, after Isaiah 6 comes Isaiah 7. I know that doesn't come as a surprise. But Isaiah, Isaiah 7 has, of course, the virgin birth. We talked glibly about the virgin birth. Isaiah 7 hits that head on. It's the, second, it's the second time it's mentioned in the scripture. When's the first time? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right on target. But uh, Isaiah seven fourteen is the classic passage, and we'll deal with that. And we'll also deal with some of the nonsense that indicts and condemns some of our modern translations, who seem to stumble over some fundamentals. Chapter 9 is messianic. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. As government shall be upon his shoulder. Who? The government will be on his shoulder. There's people in the church that say it's supposed to be on theirs. We'll talk about that a little bit. But then we get to, as we move through, we'll get to chapters 13 and 14, and they're going to be a grabber. Literal Babylon. We'll talk about Saddam Hussein and what's going on, you know, 62 miles south of Baghdad. Isaiah 13 and 14 have a lot to say about that. Some of one of the most exciting things in your lifetime and mine is Saddam Hussein rebuilding Babylon. Why? Because of Isaiah 13 and 14. We've got a whole clearest perspective of that. And, of course, chapter 14 has another interesting thing. That will introduce us to the whole role of Satan, the reality of Lucifer, and the fact that he's going to be incarnate and walking this earth. And we'll uh, talk about that. We'll also, as we go through there, we'll talk about, Isaiah talks about a number of things. Isaiah talks about the rapture. Isaiah talks about the Antichrist, a lot of the Antichrist. We talk about the treaty that Daniel chapter 9. Isaiah talks about the covenant with hell that uh, Israel gets involved in. So we'll get into some of that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.